Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. The people already voted. Castillo already won. For memory, justice, and dignity, Fujimori never again. If you have a book on the Holocaust that you have one that has opposing that has other How do you oppose the Holocaust? What? Believe me, that's come up. How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? There is a de facto alliance between China and Russia that has been a major theme of 2021. I think that despite the apparent strength of U.S. imperialism, I don't think that U.S. imperialism, quite frankly, is up to confronting uh, these two major military powers simultaneously. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivera. And on this show, part one of our year in review for 2021. Now, this year began with a deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and a plot to overturn the presidential election. Thomas O'Rourke reported for On the Ground from the Capitol that day, speaking to Trump supporters. Well, it all funnels down to yeah. this, like, chokehold on America. Listen, they want and to kill the middle perpetuated. class. They're going to kill the middle class. Hasn't the middle class been, been attacked yes. through the destruction of unions for the last 40 years? Absolutely. Hasn't the average wage been declining for American households since the early yeah, 70s? The, 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 the political bull goes down with the unions in our government. They get a, yeah. a, a, a percentage Let me ask you a question, man. We're supposed to get, what, $900 billion oh. in stimulus? Our country, for the stimulus bill, yeah. $900 billion. Yeah. It, co- it broke down to like $12,800, something like that, per citizen. America, right? Mm-hmm. We got less than 10% of that. We got 5%. I didn't $600. A, I didn't get a dime. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Why are we getting 5%? While those who spoke to Thomas O'Rourke said they did not go into the Capitol or commit acts of violence, more than 700 of those who did have been arrested and tried and even convicted, including the so-called QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, who wore horns and body paint as he joined the throng invading the deserted Senate chamber. But in the year since, members of the mob have been revealed to be but bit players in a larger scheme. Media and congressional investigations have revealed that plans to disrupt the certification of the election were directly connected to senior Trump White House staff and advisors and could involve many more players in the former administration and in Congress. The House voted December 13, 2021, to recommend that Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows be held in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the House committee after the committee revealed the flurry of email connecting Meadows to foreknowledge of the plot, including a 36-page PowerPoint suggesting ways that Trump could overturn the election results, including declaring a national security emergency or invalidating all electronic and mail-in ballots, or directing Vice President Mike Pence to seat Republican electors rather than Democratic electors. 
These documents also include text messages sent to Meadows on January 6th by Trump's children, members of Congress, and Fox News hosts. The texts were read aloud by Representative Liz Cheney at the House committee meeting on December 14th. Members of Congress, the press, and others wrote to Mark Meadows as the attack was underway. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, he needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this down. Indeed, according to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Far-right former White House strategist Steve Bannon has also been held in criminal contempt for refusing to cooperate with the investigation, as January 6th has turned into a politicized talking point with so far Trump and other plotters evading prosecution while right-wing media and pundits either ignore the coup plot or publicly put forward the lie that the rioters were not Trump supporters but rather Antifa. Fox talk show host Tucker Carlson produced a special declaring January 6th to be a false flag operation designed to purge and prosecute right-wingers. Meanwhile, there is no word about the capture or arrest of the person who placed explosives outside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee that day.
In the weeks after January 6th, the peaceful transfer of power in the U.S. was secured with 25,000 National Guard troops, which had to be vetted for the inauguration. Perhaps because so many active and retired members of the military took part in the January 6th riot, all eight members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent out an unprecedented statement to the entire U.S. military condemning the Capitol insurrection and warned service members not to do anything to impede President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. As for the Biden administration, it started its first year with a flurry of executive orders that, in theory, undid some of the egregious actions of the Trump administration, such as the ban on Muslims traveling to the United States. But more substantial changes, such as combating the climate catastrophe, student loan forgiveness, free community college, a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented, and expanded Medicare promised by Biden on the campaign trail to woo disaffected young and progressive voters remain unfulfilled as they were all lumped together into the major legislation, the Build Back Better Act, which right now remains in limbo. Now, for the first time since 1860, January 6, 2021, interrupted the peaceful transfer of presidential power in the United States. And perhaps it was a harbinger of what was to come, as right-wing extremists have maintained campaigns of fear and intimidation initiated by Trump against election officials around the country with the goal of seizing control of upcoming elections in 2022 and 2024. School officials are also being threatened, assaulted, stalked, their homes vandalized for supporting masks and vaccinations during the pandemic and for teaching about the truth of the United States being founded and developed on systemic racism and genocide. The organization Refuse Fascism organized one of the few protests here in D.C. opposing what happened January 6th. Reverend William Lamar, pastor of the Metropolitan AME Church, one of the historic black churches in D.C. vandalized by Proud Boys fascists a month before the Capitol riot, spoke about January 6th and also about moving ahead a social justice agenda. Thank you. Thank you all very much. We are here to bear witness, to bear witness like Ida Wells bears witness against lynching to bear witness like Fannie Lou Hamer bore witness against fascist oppression of black folks in Mississippi. We are here to bear witness because the impulse to have them to stand up has not been broken or buried in the United States. That fascist impulse to control, to suppress, the white supremacist impulse from the very founding of this nation continues to thrive, and the fans of that have been flamed by the current occupants of the White House. From the Oval Office, right behind us, he instructed mobs via Twitter to show up and to show out and to intimidate. We are clear that we must build a counterforce, a large human counterforce from all around the nation, from coast to coast, standing up and putting our bodies on the line so that they might know that we stand against everything that they stand for. We are here to 
bear witness, but also we're here to imagine and to build a different world. What we see is not what has to be. If we join together, we can build the kind of world where human flourishing is the reason of political discourse. We can flourish by making sure that every human being has health care. We can flourish by making sure that every worker is paid a living wage, benefits, and has retirement. And right now, what we've got to do in order to make sure that we can begin to build that new world is to get Donald Trump and Mike Pence out of office immediately. It is not enough for us to turn a blind eye and to say he will be gone in 11 days. God created the world in seven days in our tradition, and Mr. Trump can destroy it in fewer than seven. We need to be very, very clear that not punishing him and not punishing the fascist white supremacist hordes will lead to a second romanticization of white supremacy. The first is the lost cause of the Civil War. The North may have won the war, but the South won the culture with the cult of the lost cause. They were not punished, and so they were able to romanticize the story. We cannot allow this story to be romanticized. The president and all of his enablers must be prosecuted, and history must record them as criminals, such as to deter this kind of action in the future. And so we demand from our political leaders the immediate removal of this president while understanding, as my colleagues have said, it will not end fascism, but it will show that there is a counterforce. And if we continue to bear witness and build a new world, more people will join us in building the United States and a globe where human beings can flourish together. They came to our church to tear down our sign and to intimidate us. But we are bolder about the work of human freedom and liberation. We will not be deterred. We will not be intimidated. We're in the streets now. We'll be in the streets tomorrow. And we will continue this work of building a world where all human beings can live in dignity. Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm Good. Esther Rivera. I'm from on the ground on WPFW, okay. Pacifica Radio. Sure. So I wanted to get my one question in. When you started talking, there was a lot of music, and I couldn't hear the point you were making around bearing witness. Yeah, so, around, yeah, so my comment was, I'm always clear when I do this kind of work that I do not do it alone, that the ancestors are with us, and we are continuing their work. So I began with Ida Wells, who bore witness against lynching and economic violence against black people. Then moved to Fannie Lou Hamer, who bore witness against fascist voter suppression and white supremacist uh, activity in Mississippi. And so I stand as their child, as their son, that the bearing witness is the first step in building a new world. So we can't be quiet. We've got to get in the streets, and we got to be clear that we can live differently, but the people have to do what's necessary to show that we will build a different world. And that's the bearing witness. You know, one thing, one more thing. Sure. This is a real kind of Democratic Party town. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so you have a lot of people who think that Biden's victory means that everything's over. No. And you have a lot of people who, and I, I, I think, if, I could be wrong, I think if you're having a conservative 
congregation. No, um, no, okay. no, no, they put so, up with me, so no. Right. So um, talk about that and, and, yeah. and how you feel about this kind of sense that, you know, okay, we won, you know, y'all... You're making too much noise. Well, what, well we have to be very clear. The Democratic Party won, but we got to be sure that the people win. Mm-hmm. All right. So the people win when there's universal health care without equivocation. The people win when every employee in this nation earns a living wage according to the economic realities where they live. I am not excited about milk toast policies that don't get us to human flourishing. So we got to be clear about is. There is a clear difference between Trump and Biden. And if you must choose, definitely Biden is a choice. But the only way to get Biden and Harris and the Democrats to do what is necessary is for us to organize and to put pressure on them. It is we have not won anything until human beings get the things that I mentioned and so much more. We got a lot of work to do. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. No, they look. They're not conservative. No, no conservative <laughs> church. Let the pastor come out and hang out here. Okay.
Well, when former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty on April 20th, 2021, for the murder of George Floyd, hundreds were attending the funeral for Dante Wright, shot dead by police just miles from where the Chauvin trial took place. While at the same time, there were eruptions of protests after new cases of police fatally shooting Black people across the country. This year, higher profile cases included Andrew Brown Jr., shot and killed by sheriff's deputies in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, one day after Chauvin's guilty verdict. Also leaked in 2021 was a video of the 2019 torture and killing of Ronald Green by Louisiana State Police. Federal prosecutors are investigating the state police unit called the Troop F, which has a history of violence. And investigators are looking into whether Louisiana State Police brass obstructed justice to protect the troopers seen on the video punching, dragging, and stunning Green during his arrest. An Associated Press investigation identified at least a dozen cases over the past decade in which troopers or their bosses ignored or concealed evidence of beatings, deflected blame, and impeded efforts to root out misconduct. Another fact about the case of Ronald Green is that police lied to his family and told them that he died in a car crash. In Colorado, police officers and paramedics involved in the 2019 killing of Elijah McClain were indicted in his death. Officers Nathan Woodyard, Randy Rodima, and Jason Rosenblatt, and paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Shikuniak each face one count of manslaughter and one count of criminally negligent homicide, in addition to other charges. The indictments on September 1st, 2021, were two years after McLean's killing as a result of prolonged struggle for justice by Black Lives Matter organizers. ProPublica broke several important stories, including about police brutality in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, and how a juvenile judge in Tennessee, Donna Lee Davenport, is locking up young Black children for crimes that don't even exist, such as for witnessing a crime. And in the space of one week in November, there were three court verdicts about race and racism in the U.S. Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two white men, Jason Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, who were participating in a Black Lives Matter protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was acquitted and is now being vetted by the right as a hero. Three men who murdered the jogger Ahmaud Arbery in February 2020 were convicted in his murder. And white supremacists who attacked and killed anti-racist protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017, were slapped with a $25 million civil judgment. The week of the Chauvin verdict, I spoke to On the Ground's media critic, journalist John Jeter. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, you know, there are actually a number of like freedom of expression issues that I just want to mention real quickly. There are all these crazy bills passed in Florida, and I think also maybe in Oklahoma or proposed in Oklahoma, that will actually criminalize protests. You know, it's they're obviously targeted at Black Lives Matter protesters. The law in Florida will basically give uh, impunity to these people who drive their SUVs through crowds of protesters, you know, killing and maiming people. Julian Assange is still in prison. Mumia 
Abu Jamal has undergone heart surgery and apparently that's turned out okay, even though he only had to undergo this type of treatment because of medical neglect in prison. So some of the stories that we've talked about in relationship to freedom of speech and freedom of the press are still out there. But I want to offer my theme for this month, which is truth, lies, and videotape. So let's recap. If it were not for the video taken by a 17-year-old Darnella Frazier of Derek Chauvin kneeling, and not just kneeling on George Floyd's neck, but at times grinding his knee into Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. And if it were not for the protests, national, even global protests against racism in response to this public lynching, Derek Chauvin would not have even been arrested and then would not have faced the charge of second degree murder that he was just convicted of this week. So this is a people's victory for George Floyd's family and friends. And for all the people who marched, there were even martyrs and people injured by fascist vigilantes during the last year, just because they were standing up for justice. But obviously it's not a victory that says now with this bad apple tossed out that all is well with policing. So that would be one lie, right? But John, I want to draw your attention to the lie told by the Minneapolis Police Department the day George Floyd was murdered. I sent you the statement released by the Minneapolis Police Department with the headline in big letters, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. And this statement by the Minneapolis Police Department that was released last May after the May 25th death of George Floyd went viral this week. The statement goes on to describe what we would later learn was a gruesome murder. But the statement says this, quote, he was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later, end quote. So John, copies of this report, like I said, went viral Tuesday, the day Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges. Now, a long time ago, at some point, both you and I covered police, right? We were on the police beat at some point in our in our careers. Right. Okay. that's correct. And so I just want to make it plain to the listeners that this is the type of misinformation that police routinely release and that an important outcome of the Chauvin case is the increased scrutiny of police brutality, but also scrutiny about the lies that police tell and the lies that they're used to getting away with. And so this is what the official story would have been if a 17 year old had not stood and documented a murder, you know, with her cell phone. Ah. 
you know, with, with her, her nine-year-old cousin in her care standing next to her wearing a, a sweatshirt that said love. What are your thoughts on that, John? Let me start with this. I mean, you know this, Esther, but your audience wouldn't. I started my career as a journalist in Minneapolis working for the newspaper there, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I covered cops and then I covered city council. And where that Derek Chauvin trial occurred, I would walk through that every day during when I was at work. And um, when I was there in uh, late 1980s and the early 1990s was when the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis and St. Paul, was beginning to change. Stick with me here. I have a point that's relevant. Up until I think as recently as 1970, the Twin Cities was 93% white, right? It's an overwhelmingly white state and white city. When I was there in the late 80s, it was starting to change. We were starting to see an influx of blacks from places like Gary, Indiana, and Chicago, and places like that. And also a huge influx of Somalians and Ethiopians, I believe. Eritreans, even, I think. But anyway, Africans were coming. And so now I believe the numbers are something like, and Hmong, they have a lot of big Hmong population, or Laotians, people from Vietnam. And so now I believe Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, is just 63% white, right? So I say all that to say this, that the failure of not just the media, but our legal system is grounded in racial storytelling, right? What the Minneapolis police issued, their statement about George Floyd's death, it was a lie, certainly. We know that, right? And as Zora Neale Hurston said, whenever you catch someone lying, they're afraid of something. Well, what were they afraid of? What they're afraid of, right, generally speaking, we're not talking about all white people. All white people aren't bad, and white people aren't inherently bad. But this is a failure of culture. This is a culture that identifies white people as separate from the whole, that encourages white people to think of themselves as a thing apart, right? That's a certain hysteria, right? That's not based on anything in science or sociology, right? And so this racial storytelling is really at the root of our problem. Remember, the Panthers would always say, if you're going to address a problem, you have to be able to describe it, first of all. Well, we can't describe our, our problem because we are too engaged in this culture of pretend, which is racial storytelling. And that is our main failure. So like you, you mentioned this when you first started. You talked about, I, I think people should be hopeful until we draw the last breath. I'm hopeful, even though I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful, right? I hope things will change. I hope that uh, George Floyd's murder will begin to signal a real significant change in how people of color are policed in this country. But the facts on the ground say suggest very strongly that this was the exception that proves the rule, that the conviction of Derek Chauvin was the exception that proves the rule. And like you said, according to the New York Times, Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. So if we, if we say, if we acknowledge that the protests after George Floyd's killing are what probably sparked a different result, then you have to acknowledge this hysterical response. Think about that. What public policy reason could you have for passing legislation that would provide drivers with immunity for striking protest? There's no public policy rationale for that. So this should be the lead story throughout the media, I think, right? This, this hysteria, which is gripped. I'm not going to say all white people. Obviously, that's not true. 
but a critical mass of white people, enough where we see this washing over the country and really crippling our democracy and our ability to come up with the answers to our most pressing problems. So those are my initial thoughts about what's happened in Minneapolis in the last few days. When you were talking about these cars being allowed to like basically mow down protesters, there's a like an image of that, like of kind of like a t-shirt and that these right-wing groups have like like put that almost as a symbol and it's similar to how they also have on their shirts like the helicopter and like Pinochet's like henchmen fascists throwing socialists and throwing people out of the helicopters during that uh, reign of terror yeah Right. So it's the same it's the same type of energy of really basically these fascist groups in the United States. And with the passage of these types of bills is really just an endorsement of these fascist groups. So I realized, you know, watching American Insurrection, which is another documentary we talked about last week, basically someone trying to help us figure out in our minds, you know, what, what is the proud boys, right? Because, you know, you have Enrique Tario, a person of color who is obviously not white, but he's a leader of the proud boys. And so what this researchers is saying to the, the reporter AC Thompson is that it's not really about so much about white supremacy, but they are fascists. And so they are using these uh, these symbols of of leftists being thrown out of helicopters by Pinochet and having T-shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong. So that's that's who we're dealing with here. Right. But, you know, it, it, the fascism is rooted in this white nationalism. Now, two days after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, Kwamina Okran was shot to death in Gaithersburg, Maryland, by plainclothes police officers who said Okran fired a gun at them, but experts said there was no evidence that he did fire a gun. Also in the days after the Chauvin verdict, 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who appeared to have his empty hands raised in the air when he was shot and killed by Chicago police. Around the same time here in the DMV, video went viral of Army medic Karan Nazario being pulled over in Virginia by town of Windsor cops who have their guns drawn, who pepper sprayed him, assaulted him, and threatened him with execution. There there were at least four other cases of people killed by police in D.C., Maryland, and and, in Virginia during that time, including James Johnson and Dominique Williams who were shot and killed by an off-duty Pentagon police officer, Philip Dixon, in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Dixon said he thought the men were stealing a car and shot them, both in their own car. He was charged with second-degree murder. And it's really horrific to realize that for the number of these cases we covered and that that we are recalling right now, there are many more cases that we could not cover. Chantel James has more. Even despite victories for the families of black people killed by police in the trials of Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd, 
And now, just this week, in the trial of Kimberly Potter for the death of Duante Wright, 2021 remains a difficult year for police killings around the DMV. Although the heightened climate of 2020's racial justice protests has cooled, dedicated activists remained in the streets this year to call for accountability in murders by police in our area. When Antoine Gilmore was shot and killed by police sleeping in his own car in August, the community quickly rallied to express its rage and grief near the site of his death. Antoine Gilmore, say his name! Antoine Gilmore, say his name! Antoine Gilmore, say his name! Antoine Gilmore, George Watson, say his name! George Watson, say his name! George Watson, say his name! George Watson! We're out here today um, demanding justice for uh, 27-year-old Antoine Gilmore, who was killed by D.C. police. A sergeant by the name of Ennis uh, Jervik is the officer. According to reports, uh, police got a call about someone who was unconscious in their car. And so instead of sending in an ambulance, they sent police, like multiple police. And so when the police arrived and found Antoine sleeping in his car, they say that they noted a weapon on his hip. And so at one point, Antoine awoken and I believe tried to move his car. And at that point, Jervik fired 10 shots at him and uh, killing him in the process. And so, I mean, over the last couple of weeks, I mean, at least uh, four people have been killed by D.C. police. And we're also here uh, demanding justice for George Watson, who was killed just the other day by D.C. police as well. And so in terms of Antoine Gilmore and the demands, uh, the family is demanding, number one, that there be an independent investigation into the shooting. And they stress the point of it being independent because they know as well as anyone that when the police investigate themselves, more oftentimes than not, they find themselves not guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Although it's interesting because even police chief Conti acknowledged that they uh, broke with protocol by firing at a moving weapon. They're not supposed to do that. So, I mean, they acknowledge that part of it, but yet and still, we have no reason to have any faith in the DC police to sort of, you know, objectively investigate themselves. So they want an, uh, an independent investigation and they also want not just a, a conviction and a charge, but they, they want this uh, policeman to be jailed for what he did to Antoine. Just like anybody else, if you or me shot at someone 10 times and killed them, you know what I mean? It, it, it wouldn't be some, uh, you know, walk in the park in, in the courtroom. We'd have the book thrown at us, and rightfully so, because, you know, that's a brutal way to kill someone. You know what I mean? And so we don't believe that the police should be a protected class. As we close the year in mourning for those lives lost to police violence, we know that we can look forward to many strong voices rising up for justice when tragedies arise in this next year. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, continuing with our end-of-year special, focusing this time on international affairs of 2021. And I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, whether it's China, Russia, Chile, there are momentous happenings across the world in terms of 2021. And we've talked about so much this year, but I think you want to start with this ongoing triangle between the U.S., Russia, and China, and how it's ever-evolving. Well, recall that it was over a half century ago that then U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and U.S. President Richard M. Nixon, they basically established a relationship whereby the United States would have closer relations with China and Russia than they would have with each other. And it basically involved an entente with China that, as you know, set the stage for the collapse of the Soviet Union 30-odd years ago in December 1991. But now the worm has turned, and there is a de facto alliance between China and Russia that has been a major theme of 2021. I think that despite the apparent strength of U.S. imperialism, I don't think that U.S. imperialism, quite frankly, is up to confronting uh, these two major military powers simultaneously. And certainly, if you paid attention to this recent speech by Vladimir Putin to the troops in Russia, it was quite something. He basically put forward a bill of indictment against U.S. imperialism with regard to Libya and Syria and Iraq and the destruction of socialist Yugoslavia. He warned NATO that they need to back off in terms of this confrontation over Ukraine and putting missiles into Ukraine, which he feels will threaten Russian security. Why did they want to expand NATO? Why did they want to withdraw from ABM treaty? And what we're seeing today, the tension that we're seeing right now in Europe is their fault, they're to blame. At each step, we had to respond, Russia had to respond. At each step, the situation became worse and worse. We saw a degradation continuous degradation. And we are at a point when we have to decide something. We have to take a decision. We cannot let that to continue happening. I hope they understand it. I often ask myself a question, why did they do that during those times? I really don't know. Maybe they were euphoric because they won in that Cold War. Perhaps uh, they miscalculated they thought they won in the Cold War, and they provided uh, a wrong assessment of uh, developments of what could come next. We're not asking for any exclusive uh, terms. Russia calls for indivisible, equitable security in Eurasia, but if uh, 
our Western counterparts continue to push with an aggressive stance, we'll take military and technical action. We have the full right to respond to any unfriendly steps. We would like to protect our sovereignty and our defense. We know that they've been using different guises to act thousands of kilometers away from their own territory. And if they don't really like the UN Charter and international law, they say it's outdated. We, don't, we no longer need that. But if it fits their interests, they would be happy to refer to humanitarian law, to the UN Charter. We are sick and tired of those manipulations. And in this regard, as I said, it's important to continue to upgrade our armed forces. If you didn't know any better, you could easily come to the conclusion that this crisis will worsen in 2022, particularly since Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has twisted the arm of Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And there will be a vote in a few weeks on this pipeline, Nord Stream 2, that Russia has built to Germany. And if Ted Cruz has his way, this will lead to sanctions against not only Russia, deepening sanctions, but also possibly against Germany as well. And it certainly will complicate relations even further uh, with Moscow, which leads to the second point, which is relations with the European Union are not ideal as well, and certainly will get worse if Washington decides to sanction Germany over this pipeline. But recall a signal event of 2021 was the clash between France and the United States when the United States elbowed France out of the way and claimed a submarine deal with Australia, uh, that helped to accelerate France's ongoing effort to develop what it calls strategic autonomy. That is to say, to distance itself even further from US imperialism. And I would say that the relations between those great powers, the United States, China, Russia, France, Germany, will be a dominant theme of 2022 as well. Well, I know that in many of the stories we've discussed internationally, that's certainly the case. And well, for sure, the U.S. exit from and defeat in Afghanistan figures prominently in that, even on December 21st. <laughs> There was an article in Time magazine where a senior U.S. official was just bemoaning the fact that if the U.S. population had been told the truth for the last 20 years about how awful the war was going and how much money was going down the drain, then perhaps the exit would not have been, it would not have been such a debacle. And then also after pressure internationally and from aid groups here in the United States, uh, the Biden administration announced that it would loosen some of its sanctions and 
the ways that it has prevented groups from helping the Taliban. But uh, the Biden administration is still holding on to Afghanistan's assets. And I have to say that this is at the same time that the UK made this incredibly outrageous ruling that, or billion in gold, that is the property of the Venezuelan people is still going to be given to Juan Guaido, a man never elected head of the government, that he has control of the gold assets of the Venezuelan people. So I say that as an aside, because this is just the same type of international piracy that's happening post-Afghanistan. Well, with regard to Afghanistan, uh, future historians may very well conclude that the collapse of President Biden's popularity ratings can be marked from a single day, August 15th, 2021, when the Ghani regime collapsed, the Taliban swept into Kabul. But once again, this was an event that was long time in the making. Right. Uh, listeners to this program know more than most that in order to discuss Afghanistan and the coming to power of the Taliban, you really have to go back to the Carter administration. And once again, you have to go back to this maniacal obsession with Moscow and the United States cozying into bed with religious zealots in order to destabilize a left-leaning regime in Kabul supported by Moscow, helping to induce a Soviet intervention, and then the United States pouring in weapons, stinger missiles, etc., in order to weaken the Soviet Union, which of course it served to do. And then that eventuates, as we all know, on September 11, 2001, with, we are told, an attack on New York and Washington that was plotted in Kabul, Afghanistan, according to the official story. And so this war began shortly thereafter, and it culminates once again on August 15, 2021. Now, speaking of journalism, I would point uh, listeners to an article in the New York Times Magazine uh, this past Sunday that was quite uh, comprehensive in terms of the final days of the Ghani regime uh, leading up to the collapse, and also an article in The New Yorker by Steve Cole, uh, who, of course, wrote a book on Afghanistan that deals with some of the same issues, and it deals as well with the fact that Mr. Trump was seeking to evacuate from Afghanistan by any means necessary. And that basically set the stage for the Biden evacuation, which then leads directly to the collapse of the Ghani regime once again on August 15th, 2021. Well, we'll have to wrap up for today, but we'll pick up our discussion with Gerald Horn in part two of our 2021 in end of year review next week. Gerald Horn is the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books, including Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. We'll also talk about COP26, the environment, and so many of the major stories that occurred in 2021. If our December 31st show is preempted for the holiday programming on your station, you can always hear the show at 
onthegroundshow.org or on all podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Adair. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. At onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. You can also follow me, Esther Averam, on Instagram. The music we played this hour included Police by Anthony B., Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Peace. If you are an on-the-ground listener and you have not yet subscribed to our Patreon page, please consider becoming a member on Patreon. Help me to continue doing the show and to encourage me. It is really rough. (laughs) And I just would like to have more resources to do the show. And I'd like to be able to provide training for our volunteers and just give more assistance to the folks who are helping to produce the show and going out to cover things and just have more resources for our production. And I can only do that with more help. We are an independent production. I am not funded by any big, you know, foundations or anything like that. And we don't have advertising, as you can see. So this is a people-powered project. And if you can assist and you can support I would love that if you will have an end of the year giving budget you can go to our Patreon page or you can go to PayPal and give you could also send a check but if you sign up at Patreon you'll be on the list to get an email in your inbox every week in terms of the news and you'll get exclusive content so that's that's the best way but uh, if you go to onthegroundshow.org to the donate page, it would also tell you all the ways that you can give. I thank you so much, and happy holidays and happy new year. <laughs>